Welcome to Longitude Soundbites, where we bring innovative insights from around the world directly to you. Hi, I am Emory McKenzie. I'll be your host today. I recently completed my master's in geoscience at Rice University, and I'm now working at Chevron to discover energy resources. For this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Brandon Dugan, professor of geophysics at the Colorado School of Mines. I was curious about Brandon's research on unconventional freshwater resources that were discovered under the Atlantic seabed, and I wanted to know more about how he develops such fascinating research. Join me in a conversation about his approach to science, mentoring and writing papers, and what led him to this project. Enjoy listening. always fascinated with science and engineering and started out just as a, as a math major and maybe on the on the creativity side and in the brain of an 18 year old it seemed kind of boring to me i was good at math but doing math for math's sake didn't really encourage me or excite me or anything like that so i just started looking through a, a physical paper catalog at the time in the 1990s of you know what majors used math to do other things and I found the geological engineering program, um, and it seemed to engage my math and science brain, but also my desire to, to work with nature and, and see things. And so um, unbeknownst to me, I, I sort of saw early creativity of trying to, to take natural processes and explain them with, with math and, and, and physics. And I started out and completed my degree in geological engineering. And during that time, I was fortunate enough to do two internships at Oak Ridge National Lab. And so in the middle of taking my classes where everything had an answer that was perfect to three decimal places in my engineering curriculum, I started measuring things in the earth during these internships. And I realized that the earth was much more complex than a number that I looked at in the book. And, and so I really got interested in how the earth changed and how well we could understand that. And I was started thinking about water processes and sort of was going back to my youth, I spent a lot of time outside in nature playing in water, and I saw that, hey, I could still do my science and engineering and, and look at water. I just saw the complexity of earth and the elegance of math and how we could work together to explain problems, pursued that on with my, my PhD, more on the geo side, on the earth side of things and on the engineering side, and have continued that career just you know chasing problems that I want to find an explanation to. I might not find an answer, but I can at least provide some insight to how something works. You were in, more into geomechanics and like slope stability on the seafloor. And then now you're into freshwater resources. How did we get to that transition? Great. Um, so for, yeah, as you mentioned, Emery, my, for my PhD, I worked on geomechanics. Um, so how sediments in this case, not rocks, so things that were, were softer than real rocks, kind of like modeling clay, how they break apart and form landslides in the ocean on these really low angle slopes, so almost flat slopes. We did a lot of work, um, both with elegant math and field studies, just like I talked about and how I got there of trying to understand this. And in doing so, I was just looking back at a lot of historical literature. What do we know about these continental shelf environments near the coastline? And I found these this data set from the 1970s where the U.S. Geological Survey had found freshwater beneath the ocean in the continental shelf. They weren't looking for freshwater. They were actually trying to do a minerals assessment along the, the margin of the United States in the 1970s. And so they wrote about it, but it wasn't their primary objective. So they didn't really try to explain it. And so it was geographically proximal to where I was studying submarine landslides. And it was just another 
problem or phenomenon that was interesting to me. Why would you find fresh water beneath a big body of salt water, the biggest body of salt water on earth? And so I started trying to explain that. Um, again, similarly trying to understand theoretically, how could this water be there? In the perfect world, how could we explain water being 50 kilometers offshore and 200 meters below the, below the seafloor being fresh enough that you could drink? Came up with some, some predictions. And since then, we've been trying to collect data to improve and revise those predictions about how that water got there, how much water is there, um, and what that water might be used for. Could you speak to like how collaboration helps the creative process for you? It's like, how is their expertise fueling your motivation for studies? I think part of it um, sort of starts with my career, starting out in engineering and going to geosciences. I've been able to work on both sides of that, that field and see that what a geologist knows can work with an engineer to um, solve a problem. So when it comes to things like, I need to look at solute transport, how, how salt's moving around. And I understand the basic physics of that problem, but to really understand what we need to measure and how we need to measure it, I need to talk to somebody who thinks about that problem intimately and they can share their information with me and I can share my information with them. And the sum is greater than the individual parts kind of thing. For me, it's, it's always bringing in new knowledge. We pay a lot of money. We put a lot of time into collecting data. Let's get everything we can out of it. So if somebody can contribute to the, the puzzle, let's think about how they think about that science. And then I might think about it differently based on their perspective, just like you might think about it differently from your perspective based on your training if you're a peer engineer and as a peer geologist and we're studying the same problem. Well, you're bringing students in to come work with you. Is it best to have a kind of a geomechanics background, a freshwater resources background, engineering? I guess for, for students that come in to work with me, I probably view two things that are probably less discipline specific than that first is really important. So one is a passion about whatever problem they're working on. So if I have a student who's really interested in geomechanics, that'll get me excited about geomechanics and we can learn together. If I have a student who's really interested in freshwater resources and they have a, a project they want to attack, that, that will excite me and we'll work together. And that's, again, going back to collaboration and teamwork. You can feed off either each other's enthusiasm. So I don't really have a preference. It's more of their perspective of why they want to do this and what their end goals are, whether it be to go work for a government agency, um, to go work in an engineering consulting firm. You know, as long as they show that passion and that enthusiasm to me, that's what I'd like. And then underlying that, I like to see strong math and physics backgrounds, because whether it be in the modeling that I do numerically, there's a lot of math and physics behind that, or even the, the field work that we do, there's a lot of math and physics underlying that. And so if they have that underlying knowledge. I feel like I can mentor them and help them learn the discipline specific things, whether it be electrical resistivity surveys or triaxial stress experiments or uh, groundwater flow. I feel like I can add that subject expertise on top of the fundamentals. So those things that come in, they want to work on a certain problem. Let's say they want to branch out. How do you of influence them or motivate them to branch out of their comfort zone and study a different problem and learn a new discipline? I try to let students develop their own thought process. And so I will help them with questions. I will rarely tell them what they have to do. And if I see things that are peripherally related to what they're doing, I might point them in the direction and say, oh, have you ever thought about this? Or when constructing their thesis committees or things like that, I try to make sure that we have a well-rounded group of people so they're getting feedback from people who are not the same expertise as me. So, uh, I just re returned from the American Geophysical Union conference last week in San Francisco. Um, it has a whole range of geophysical problems. And so when I'm there with students and mentoring them, 
I tell them to go explore things that they're just curious about. Maybe it might not be their primary area of interest, but there's 20,000 wonderful scientists there. Let's go hear what some other people have to say. Maybe they're talking about water on Mars, so it's related to water at some level, but it's on a different planet. So I try to encourage students to think of their skill set and how it can be applied to other, other disciplines because their creativity, their interests will change over time. We might get new data sets that will change over time. We might discover old data sets that will make us think about something differently. So I always like to encourage students that it's their approach to thinking about a problem, which is which is what's going to get them success, not just picking, I want to do this problem because it's exciting right now in the news or it's a buzz trending on some social media. You know, they should do what, what interests them and try to find creative problems that excite them. I'm glad you mentioned the conference because the conference is where you get a lot of ideas. There's so many people studying so many different sciences that you might hear one word that like piques your interest in a talk and it's like, this is something that I want to study now. Yep. I love geosciences because it's always a linkage between two sciences now, especially. You have to incorporate many disciplines to kind of understand a problem. Have there been any big discoveries in freshwater resources within the past, say, 20 years? Yeah, so I've collaborated with Chloe Gustafson at Columbia University, her PhD advisor, Carrie Key at Columbia University, and another colleague of ours, Rob Evans at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, in the 2000s, really developed how we could use electrical techniques in marine environments to image where we see pieces of the earth that are more resistive or less resistive. And that has allowed us to basically make 2D pictures of where we think freshwater and saltwater are interacting beneath the ocean without actually sampling them. So it gives us targets to drill if we want to understand the age of those waters and when they were emplaced, or geometries to think about where if is water flowing in really thin lenses or is it in big blocky bodies. And so they overcame some pretty interesting technological concepts to be able to do these electrical surveys in the ocean because the ocean is full of salt water. So you put current in it and it just wants to short circuit and go right through the salt water. And so they were trying to basically send current into the more resistive layer. They figured that out and it's now helped how well we can constrain where freshwater might be in the offshore environment without actually having to drill a well like they did in the 70s. Of course, we have to work with well data to get the true rock properties and fluid properties, but the two work together to get sort of fine scale features and then map them out more regionally with the geophysical data. Now we can look at precise locations where we might want to drill and sample the waters to find out if they're 10,000 years old or 100,000 years old or 100 years old, which might tell us something about how quickly they're recharging. Are they recharging over human time scales, something like a modern aquifer that we use to get a lot of drinking water and agricultural water from? Or is this something that's a relic from uh, a previous climate state when sea level was lower and glaciers were larger or something like that. When you're writing a paper, so how do you kind of get creative and say in a discussion section of a paper? I guess I'll, I'll talk about my writing process in general. Two things that I, that I do when I start writing is, first one is I think about the figures I want to present. What is the data and information that I want to show? doesn't have to be the perfect figures. They can be hand sketches, but I'm like, oh, first thing I want to show, I'm looking offshore New England. I need a map. I need to tell them where we're working. We're going to show them some seismic data. So I'm going to have to have a picture of, of some seismic data. I'm going to have a groundwater model. So I'm going to have to have, you know, some of these things. And so I look at the picture and that sort of tells, that gives me the overall flow of the paper that I, that I want. And then what works best for me is just, just to write. So it's just brain dumps. I don't try to edit. I don't try to do anything. And I, I just, I just write and I write and I write and I write. And then I go back and sort of rearrange things to align with the order of those pictures. 
And then when it gets to sort of the, the main part of your, your question, where's the sort of creativity and the integration come in, I go back to what motivated me about this. So the introduction of my paper is going to say, what, what motivated this study? And so in the freshwater resources, I'm just really curious as to why do we have freshwater offshore? We predict that there might be as much as 300 years of freshwater available to New York City offshore, um, even if it's not renewal, renewable or recharged today. That's pretty amazing to me that there's that much freshwater beneath the ocean. And so when I'm thinking about the discussion, I'm trying to think about, you know, what's my original simple prediction based on theory? How is that refined from the data that I collected, just like, just like you mentioned? And then how do I weave these things together to sort of say how much of that original motivation have I addressed? Yes, we're confident the water's there. We have uncertainty about how much because we have uncertainty in this data quantity. Um, if we change our model by this much, here's, here's where we get with uncertainty. And so I think about a lot about how do I put uncertainty on it? Or another way to think about it is like, how can I put confidence on my work? And it's by pulling all these things together, um, being honest to the data. An observation is an observation. You have to explain it to your audience, whether it aligns with your original hypothesis or not. Um, it's usually, in my experience, the ones that don't align with the original hypothesis are the ones that require the most creative thought, not to explain them, but to understand them so you can explain them. Why didn't this match? There's a reason for it. Um, it can be because I didn't understand the system. It be, could be because we took a sample the wrong way. All of these things are, are valuable. So I go back and think about what was my motivation? Have I used my evidence to support that we've made some advancement there and also motivate future science? So when I'm talking to my, my graduate students or early career researching colleagues, I tell them that any great science project will answer one question and ask six or seven more good questions. And to me, that's success. It may feel like you're not making a lot of progress because you keep asking more questions, but that's actually one of the parts where a lot of us, myself included, struggle when it comes to science because you're trying to address this one question and then two new ones pop up and you want to address those. But at some point you have to say, no, I need to stop and just answer this first question and save the other ones for later. And so when do I call a project done? Well, it's probably never done, but I know when to stop and restart and share the information with the community. It's the beauty of science. Once yes. we know one more thing, we need to know three more. So Yes, exactly. <laughs> you'd, ask, you'd mentioned sort of like how I deal with like roadblocks at the beginning and things like I have roadblocks when I'm writing, when I'm thinking about new projects. For me, it's really, I love my work. I love what I do. I've, I've been doing it for 20 plus years. It's evolved from different aspects of mechanics to freshwater, but breaks are important. And so for me, it's being outside in nature, whether it be hiking or walking. Um, I like to spend time out in, in nature. I used to do a lot of running. Now I do a lot of hiking and camping. Even simple things as I commute to and from work most days. I park in the farthest place that I can of a parking lot. So I get some extra time outside. To me, it's that fresh air and recycling of, um, it lets my mind sort of let go of everything, forget about it. And then a couple hours later, or the next morning, pick it up. So for me, it's just physical and mental detachment from the workstation as much as I love the workstation. I greatly appreciate your time and, and all the insight. Thank you. I'm kind of interested in freshwater resources now. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool what we're doing. So we think the one in New England is driven by the last stage of glaciation. We had glaciers there 10,000 years ago, but we're also looking at some in New Zealand where there weren't glaciers 10,000 years ago. So the, some of these look like they are sort of active today and some look like they're probably relic. Sometimes you find the most curious things when you're not looking for them and nobody was looking for fresh water in, beneath the ocean and that's what they found. We hope you enjoyed our episode. I'm constantly fascinated with our ability to find natural resources 
that contribute to the well-being of society. Brandon's approach to research showed me that exploring past discoveries, then applying new knowledge can lead to developing great science and solving problems. To view the episode transcript, please visit longitude.site. If you're a college student interested in leading a conversation like this, visit our website longitude.site to submit an interest form or to write to us at podcast at longitude.site. Join us next time for more unique insights on longitude sound bites.